fear, right? And that's uh, maybe the genre you can think of as horror. What's the purpose of it? Well, it's to scare you. It's to make you afraid. But Aristotle thought that these, if these emotions are separated, if fear and pity are not conjoined in the same play, then it couldn't be properly a tragedy. And in fact, it was dishonest because it led your emotions in ways that are not true to your experience of life. We don't experience just horror or just sentimental um, um, things. That doesn't mean those genres are wrong, but they're not a tragedy. A tragedy has to enter into the human experience of what it's like to be fallen and live in this world, and it should evoke, in the end, fear and pity and lead to this cathartic experience that purges those emotions. The Greeks called... The, they called this fate. They wanted to examine what it was like for a character to deal with fate. Now, as Christians, we know that uh, the world, the history of the world, our own lives are not governed by, by fate, but by the will, the sovereign decree of God. And so a tragedy is dealing with what it's like on the ground, as it were, in this fallen world. Scholars have seen that the story of Saul, along with maybe the story of Samson, are the only two real tragedies in Scripture where the, the hero begins good. And he has the potential for greatness. He has the potential to accomplish the purposes for which God had given him. But he has a tragic flaw, and the hero fails. And that's what we've watched with Saul we are coming to the conclusion of this saga, ending with his death, and, and we do. Indeed, it does form catharsis in us as we mourn what happens, not just to the life of this hero, but to his family and to the larger community who is devastated through his death. See, Saul is a tragic figure because his flaw is that he refused to repent. He refused to change his mind and go in a different direction. He was given ample opportunities over and over again, and sometimes he does. Sometimes he changes. Sometimes he says, you're right, David, and I'm, I'm wrong. I shouldn't be persecuting you. You are innocent. But at the next moment, he's back hunting down David. And you wonder, was it godly sorrow? Was he really sorrowful for his sin? Or is he just sorry that he didn't really accomplish his goal, snuffing out David? As the narrator brings this to a close, this first book of Samuel, and if we were continuing on, we would see that 2 Samuel actually begins with the same narrative, the death of Saul. These two uh, books frame the life of Saul as the end of a tragedy, but also the beginning of David's kingship. But the nature of that death and the collateral damage that sin always brings is on full display in this text. So as we read this text, I want you to keep this question in mind. What does a life of continued unrepentant sin lead to? What are the wages of that kind of life? And how does it affect our community?
So please turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 31. We're going to read together beginning at verse 1. It's printed also for you in the bulletin. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. And the battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor-bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled. And the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. So they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body on the wall of Bethshane. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the body of his sons from the wall of Bethshane, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we do give you thanks for this, your word. Sobering as it is, tragic as it is, a reminder of a life the wages of a life of unrepentant sin. May we be warned. May we be cautioned not to follow in the footsteps of King Saul. Father, bless the hearing of this, your word. Seal it to our hearts and open them so that we may understand. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, our text this morning begins now. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and this action is happening simultaneously with chapter 28 and 29, or I'm sorry, 29 and 30, right? Remember, Saul, this is how things happen. Saul goes out to battle against the Philistines. He sees how huge the army is, and he begins to tremble, right? He is deathly afraid because he sees a vast horde of Philistines, Now, they have come up to the Valley of Jezreel, and this is an important area. It's like a highway. It's a highway between Egypt and all of the rest of the um, Middle East. It's this highway that travels up towards Turkey and Asia Minor, but also towards Babylonia. And so it's a strategic position for them. 
If they can occupy this, they can control the trade. That's why they are at Jezreel. That's why they are mustered for battle. And Saul is terrified. So he, what does he do? He begins to pray and he trusts the Lord. He knows that the Lord will deliver him and will never put the righteous to shame. No, that's not what happens, right? He doesn't trust in the Lord. He wants to know exactly what God should, what he should do. And so he goes, because God doesn't respond to him, he goes to the witch at Endor and he calls up Samuel. And what does he do? He asks Samuel, what should I do? I don't know what to do in this situation. And Samuel says, you fool. Your life is going to be required of you. You and your sons. And you will be defeated, all of Israel. I mean, can you imagine getting that news? I, it's, it's a wonder that he doesn't pull a Jonah, right? And he's like, I'm out of here. I am going to outrun fate. I'm going to outrun the will of God. But no, he goes. He's there. You sort of wonder if he told his sons. A wise father wouldn't tell your sons those things. Hey, boys, we're going to die in battle. Yeah, strengthen yourself. You know. No, he doesn't do that. But you can imagine just what's going on in his head as he's there in battle, knowing he's going to die and his sons are going to die. What's going through his mind? The narrator is very terse. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel. That's, this is happening simultaneously with David, who is fighting against the Amalekites. Remember, they raided his home at Ziklag, and he had to go and pursue them. That's happening at the same time that Saul is in battle with the Philistines. And he just is like, now, in other news, the Philistines are at war with the Israelites. You know, it's that kind of thing. He's just stating the facts. And he says, all the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The tragedy of that is not really expressed in those words, right? And what do we find? The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malkishua, the sons of Saul. And you wonder, if is Jonathan mentioned first because he's the firstborn, or is it because he's the preeminent among them? Is it because of all the characters besides David in 1 Samuel, his character shines forth as embodying most what it looks like to be Christ? Remember how he gave up all of his ownership to the kingship. He could have been king and he would have been a good king given how he lived his life, his character. But he set it aside. And he said, I'm going to throw in my lot with David. That's the man of God's choosing. And that's who I'm going to go behind. And he goes and he encourages him over and over again. He strengthens him in the Lord. He makes a covenant with him. And the friendship David laments in, first, in 2 Samuel 1 was greater than the love that he had of a woman. Not meaning that he's homosexual in any way, but in that the, the, the kind of bond that they had was so strong, like the covenant of marriage. That's the kind of covenant they had together that would not be broken, except by death. So Jonathan dies first. 
And ironically, Melchishua, it's a theophoric name. That means, you know, the Hebrews placed a lot of importance on the names they gave. They usually gave them after they were circumcised. And it was meant not only to vision forth what the character of that person should be, but also to testify of what God had done for them. Malkishua means the king, i.e. Yahweh, has delivered. Now scholars believe that Saul probably named him this after chapter 11 and his battle with Nahash and the Ammonites. And we're going to talk about that in a moment, so I'm not going to explain that, but it's just ironic Yahweh has delivered. And Saul's there. He's on the hill. And he watches Yahweh has delivered die. Yahweh has delivered. Not from the Philistines. Not from death. But to death. Sobering sobering thought of the judgment of God. And the battle pressed in on Saul. And I always think of, I think of that, that scene in the movie, The Lord of the Rings, with the, the return of the king. At the end, you know, they're, they come to the gates of Mordor, right? And they're this, the armies of the West are all gathered at the gates, and they open the gates, and, and all the, the armies of Mordor come out, and they, they surround them. And there's this circle of the armies of the West, and they're completely surrounded Right, and they're, you know, simultaneously Frodo is taking the ring to the tower. And that's the picture we have here. Saul and his men are on completely surrounded by the Philistines. His sons lay dead there. And the archer's arrow finds him. You know, you, you can imagine Saul on his knees. He's sucking air from the wound in his chest. And blood is coming out of his mouth. And he pleads with his armor bearer. Thrust me through. I'm already going to die. Kill me. Take me out of my misery. Don't let this pagan, uncircumcised Philistines come and torture me. Don't let me fall into their hands. Remember, we, we, we sort of think back to all the times when, when David could have killed Saul. What did he say over and over again? Not gonna, I'm not. I'm not going to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. And neither will this armor bearer. He says, no, I won't. I won't participate in that. So Saul takes his own sword and he falls on it, killing himself. And it's meant to be tragic. Self-inflicted wound. Suicide. That's what a life of unrepentant sin has led Saul to. It's not a heroic death in battle. It's humiliating. Seeing that the Philistines had won today, the people across the valley and these strategic cities, the cities that occupy an area that controls trade for that whole region, cutting off Israel from the, the north, from the south, Those people flee, and their cities are inhabited by the Philistines. But it isn't until the next day that Saul and his sons and their bodies are found. Of course, they, in a somewhat twisted picture, they cut off Saul's head. 
reminding us, of course, of David when he cut off the head of the Philistine hero, Goliath. He held his head up as champion, right? Because he was. So in a twist of fate, Saul's head is cut off and carried throughout the land as the messengers preach the gospel. That's the word. They evangelize Philistia, saying, We have defeated King Saul. We have put down King Saul, who, by the way, in their pagan mindset, is the embodiment of Israel's God. We have defeated Israel's God. And they trumpet the good news through all their cities as they hang his head and his armor in the temple of their God. They have won. They have defeated Israel and defeated Israel's God. But the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead, they send their valiant men to rescue the bodies. And of here, we need to just say a, a little something about what happened in chapter 11. If you'll remember, it's just after the ordination of Saul, as he's anointed to be king, he gets a message from the people of Jabesh-Gilead, and they plead with him, come and rescue us, because the king, Nahash, whose name means snake, has told us that he's going to come and pluck out our eyes and make us slaves. Come and rescue us. And and, and in a moment, Saul is filled with the Holy Spirit. He kills and slaughters the ox and the cart, and he offers a burnt offering, and he calls a curse down on any of Israel who would not go out with him to relieve, to rescue the people of Jabesh-Gilead. It's the one high point in Saul's life. The one moment where he listens to the voice of God, he responds and God delivers. God delivers the Ammonites into his hands and he destroys them. No doubt these men remember. They remember the victory of Saul. Maybe they they have chosen to remember him in that light. Like, I don't know where he's going now, but man, when he started, he was good. He was filled with the Spirit. And so they they take the bodies and they go and they bring them back. They burn them and they bury the bones under the tamarisk tree. You remember, that's the place where Saul sat to rule. It's a place of kings. It's a place of judgment. So they honor him. Interesting thing about this ending is it's so sparse. It doesn't give us a comment about why. Why does this happen? We're supposed to take the cumulative life of Saul and ask ourselves, why did he come to this end? Why is this Saul's story? Why does it have to be a tragedy? I want to draw two things out of this. And in your bulletins, I've, I've, I've reversed the order, so I want to change that. First, we're going to notice that The unrepentant sin of Saul did not just affect himself, but was devastating for his family and for the whole community. Our sin causes collateral damage. And then secondly, we're going to look at a life of unrepentant sin leads to death. A humiliating death in Saul's case. So first, we need to notice that it's not just Saul who dies here. It's not as if God couldn't completely punish, discipline Saul, 
you could have, we have cases like this in Scripture where the random arrow shoots and kills the king. And all of the rest of the army could be triumphant and win the battle against Philistia. God's totally sovereign over every arrow that's flying. But the point that he's trying to show is that our sin has effects on other people. There is no such thing as a private sin. Now, we might think that it's private. We might think that we're not harming somebody else. It's just my personal sin. Or you might expand it to just one or two other people. You might say, you hear this a lot in our culture. What we do in the privacy of our home, we're not hurting anyone. Is that true? No, it's, it's not true. You're hurting yourself, for one, but you're damaging other people and the relationships around you. The world that God has built is covenantal. We were made to be in relationship with other people. We come into this world not as individuals. You did not come into the world as an individual. You came into the world in a family who is nestled within a larger family, who is nestled within a community, who is placed in a state, in a country. You are, all of us are, inhabit a web of social connections, right? We can't think in terms of individual because our culture is constantly pushing us to see that. They want to emphasize our individuality. But when we sin, we don't sin in isolation. Our sin affects everybody we touch. There's no such thing as a private sin. I want to just just think with me. The, The private sin that Saul had, how it began. Remember, they're marching back from battle. David has just defeated Goliath, and they're coming back home in triumph and victory. And what do the people sing? Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And what does Saul do? Well, he has a private sin. It's not hurting anyone. He just thinks, What? Now, all that's left to give to David is the whole kingdom. He just has a little bit of envy. And it says that he eyed David from that moment on. It's just a private sin. It's not affecting anyone, right? He's just thinking in his head. He's just privately envying him. Is that how it stays? Well, eventually, David's there playing the harp. And his private envy becomes very public when he takes his spear and tries to pin him to the wall. But it doesn't just stay between him and David, but then he draws Jonathan in. And then his servants, and then the entire army. And soon, they're spending taxpayer money on this worthless endeavor of hunting a flea in the wilderness. And Saul's private sin of envy has corrupted the whole community. Sin has a compounding effect. What seemed harmless and small soon grows to epic proportions. The secret porn addiction leads to adultery, prostitution, or worse, incest and rape. The little greedy thought, it leads to cutting corners at work or fudging the numbers. It leads to fraud and embezzlement, neglecting spiritual disciplines, well, yeah, I didn't read my Bible this morning or pray, but it's no big deal. 
then you make the same excuse the next day and the next day and the next day, and then you think, well, I mean, it doesn't matter if I come to worship. I'll eventually go or watch it online. Pretty soon you are completely backslidden, falling away from the faith altogether. Little sins never stay little. If you don't weed your garden, your garden is soon consumed by weeds. They grow faster and they're more vigorous. It's the same with sin. I want to say something to you men. You were made to be leaders. You were made to lead in your homes, in the church, in the state. You were made to lead. And we have been dealt, we have been dealing with generations of rampant feminism that has emasculated men so that they're unsure of themselves. They're scared to lead. You need to lead. God has called you to lead. And when you abdicate that role as a leader, that sin has compounding effects on your family, our church, and this nation. If you abdicate, if you think, I I can't, I can't do it, I'm not qualified, she's better. That sin has a trickle-down effect. And the degradation of the family, the church, and the state can be traced to that kind of abdication of leadership. To refusal to act like men, to lead like men, and to take responsibility for the spheres of life that God has placed you over. You men need to stand up straight with your shoulders back and take responsibility for what's right in front of you. If you're scratching your head wondering why your kids walked away from the faith, why your marriage is in a shamble, why you're in debt, and why your home is a temple for materialistic consumerism, then you need to take a look no further than the man in the mirror. The buck stops with you. Start taking responsibility. Don't think that your private sins will not break forth into public sin in your family and in our community. They will, and they have, and we're reaping the fruit of that. There's a story about G.K. Chesterton that around 1908, the London Times asked him, along with other notable authors, to write an article answering the question, what is wrong with the world? And Chesterton's response was to send them a brief letter that said, Dear Sir, regarding your article, what is wrong with the world? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. What's wrong with the world? I am. We are so good at pointing the finger at somebody else. They failed. It's them. The Democrats. It's her. It's the children. No, it's you. The problem is you. You have to take responsibility. You cannot think that your private sin will not affect your family. That includes includes your unwillingness to lead. And women, the wisest of women builds her house, but folly, with her own hands, tears it down. Proverbs 14.1 You nurture your homes, but to what? 
What are you nurturing in your homes? Are you cultivating repentance? Or are you covering over sin and teaching your children to do the same? Are you creating a space where your children can come to you, confess their sins, and be forgiven? Do they see you doing that? Or do they see you undermine the authority and leadership of your husband? The same can be said of your relationships in the church. Is your love for someone really just a disguise for being a busybody? For getting to know the latest gossip of what's going on in their life? Is that how you define love? And you young people, you're not exempt from causing collateral damage from unrepentant sin. In many ways, your rebellion against your parents resembles Saul's rebellion against God, a refusal to listen to God's guidance. You think you know better. You think, I can go this way, even though my parents who have lived on this earth a lot longer, and that means they've made a lot more mistakes, are telling me that's not a good way to go. Moses says in Numbers 32, 23, and be sure your sin will always find you out. We, we need to become the kind of community that confesses sin to one another. We, we have to get, we got rid of the confessional, which was probably good, emphasizing the priesthood of all believers. But did we replace it with confessing our sins one to another? Or, or have we just got good at hiding it? masking over it, thinking, this is just, yeah, I'm, I'm envying, but I'll just confess it privately and the Lord will forgive me. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. You rob your brother and sister in Christ of being the forgiveness of Christ when you refuse to come and say, I have sinned. I have been envious. I have been jealous. I've been angry. I have used my gifts in wrongful ways. And your brother or sister in Christ can say, Amen. But Christ has forgiven you. Look to him and receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. How many of you have had that happen? Or you've had a brother and sister tell you the forgiveness of Christ. I think it's rare. We have to cultivate a community that freely confesses sin. Because I don't know about you, but I have not arrived. I'm pressing forward and I'm forgetting what lies behind. But I still got a long way to go. And if we don't cultivate that kind of community then we're going, to have, we're going to fall prey to the same problems that are happening to all churches around us, right? With abuse in leadership and sexual immorality. Why did that happen? Well, because they could never tell somebody when it started with a porn addiction. And they could have heard the forgiveness of Christ and they could have walked alongside their brother and it never would have led to that breaking out into adultery or abusing other people in their ministry, but they never cultivated that community. They had to hide their sins. They had to put on the, the achiever 
I have arrived and I'm the model. I'm not the model. Jesus Christ is the model. And as much as my life is consistent with his, I can say, follow me as I follow Christ. But I can't do that if I can't confess sin to you and you can't confess sin to me. We have to cultivate a community of confession. Because otherwise we're nurturing unrepentant sin. And the wages of that sin is death. That's what unrepentant sin leads to. Saul's life provides a fitting analogy that points to what Paul said in Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, death is a reality for us all, right? Adam sinned, and we're all heading towards death. We know that. So what is Paul talking about? Paul's not saying that the kind of death, right? He's not saying, well, if you're repentant, then you won't have a humiliating death dying in battle like Saul. No, many martyrs have died humiliating, painful deaths, being persecuted for their faith. He's not talking about the kind of death. He's talking about, is your death going to be tragic? Meaning there is no good news afterwards. Is that the end? Right? We look at the antithesis. But... The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So then, if the antithesis is eternal life, which is beyond comparison, then the wages of sin is death, is eternal death, a separation from God, a judgment for all of eternity, for which the horrors we can not even fathom. Death is not merely the dissolution of the body. I think here we see the wage metaphor fleshed out in the real-life character of Saul. You know, when you think of wages, you think of the bank account, right? You think of uh, you're accruing interest. You're putting something in. You're saving up. What are you saving up for? Well, Saul was saving up for death. The wages of sin is death, eternal death, death separated from God. God does not look at our lives in the snapshot. He's not looking at the picture. Like, all spiffed up on Sunday. You know, you got your tie, your Sunday best. Take a picture. You're not judged by that. You're judged by the video of your whole life. How did you live your life? It's all lived a life of unrepentant sin. David could never have imagined that this was the end that God had determined for Saul. Remember in chapter 26, verse 10, it says, And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. David didn't imagine that Saul would die from suicide, from a self-inflicted wound. But look, Look at that picture with me. Is that not the picture of all of us trifling with our sin? Is it not a self-inflicted wound? Most of the problems and the sin that I have done has been of my choice. Self-inflicted. Much of the sin is a slow drift. It doesn't happen just overnight. It didn't happen just overnight in Saul's life. It's slowly unfolding as he refuses to trust God in this situation. 
as he refuses to listen to God in this situation, as he gives way to envy in this situation. And each of those times, God is parading in front of him an option to flee from temptation, to turn in repentance and accept the grace of God. Saul turns away from that over and over and over again. And I, I want you to get this. This is not the tragic story of a Philistine pagan hero. This is a member of the people of God, circumcised on the eighth day. He eats kosher food. He goes and worships at the tabernacle. He reads his Bible. He prays. He comes to church on Sunday. He was baptized when he was an infant. But he didn't live a life of faith. You can sit in this church and have a hard heart of stone that does not believe God, refuses to listen, stopping your ears from even hearing. Although our text doesn't give a summary statement of his sin and God's judgment, the chronicler does. First Chronicles 10, 13 So Saul died for his breach of faith. He broke faith with the Lord in that he did not keep the command of the Lord and also consulted a medium seeking guidance. He did not seek guidance from the Lord. Therefore, the Lord put him to death and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. Saul broke faith. He failed to trust God and look to him for guidance. In truth... If you look at the video of Saul's life, Saul's been plunging the dagger in deeper and deeper from the very beginning since at least chapter 15. Inching his way closer to the heart of it as he steadily grows, not in faith, but in unrepentant sin. Would that you had the eyes to see your sin in that way. Would that you saw that when I sin, I'm taking the knife and I'm plunging it in. John Owen famously said in his treatise on on the mortification of sin, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The greatest sin, of course, is a refusal to receive God's grace. It's a refusal to live by faith. The unrepentant sinner says, I can do this. I can do this on my own. I can make my dynasty strong. I just need to kill David. I can defeat this enemy. I just need to consult with Samuel. I can do it on my own. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I don't need God. That's what every sinner says when he sins. The refusal to acknowledge the sovereignty of God and to accept and receive the grace and live instead by faith. I can't do it. I need you. I can't save myself. I need Christ. I want to say just briefly something about suicide. There are only really three main cases of suicide in scriptures. There's a couple other, but They don't reach the level of these three main ones. The first is here with King Saul. The second is in 2 Samuel with Ahithophel, 
whose advice Absalom did not take, and he goes and he hangs himself. And then, of course, Judas Iscariot, the one who denied Jesus by selling him, betraying him, and who went and hung himself. Nowhere in Scripture is suicide shown in a favorable light. It's not seen as being a noble way to end your life. Augustine, in his magnum opus, The City of God, said, It is significant that in Holy Scripture no passage can be found in joining or permitting suicide, either in order to hasten our entry into immortality or to void or avoid temporal evils. God's command, thou shalt not kill, is to be taken as forbidding self-destruction. And, of course, each of these cases, these men are deeply troubled men. Deeply troubled. And part of, the, part of what marks them all is that their desire for the self to be sovereign and an unwillingness to receive the grace of God. So on the one hand, we want to say that suicide is a sin. Unequivocally, it's a sin. But on the other hand, we want to say that God is gracious. God is gracious to his elect, to the people that he has called. And there are times, there are times when life, where you despair of life itself. I've been there. I have thought of suicide before. I know what that feels like, where you have no hope, either from your own sin or from sins of other people, and you feel like the only way out is for me to take my own life. Paul himself wrestled with this. Whether I will stay in the body and do fruitful ministry or whether I will depart and be with the Lord, which I shall choose, I I don't know. I didn't know it was a choice. So I want to say that if that describes you and you're feeling despair, like you have no hope, then I want to say you have options besides suicide. And come and talk to one of us. Come and talk to me. And I would love to encourage you and show you the hope that you have. Even in the midst of suffering. Even in the midst of intense pain. Even when people are sinning against you. You can hang on and persevere. And God will encourage you in those times. I think Karl Barth summarizes this well. It's a little bit long, but I want you to hear this. It's so powerful. He says... These things, i.e. sovereignty, solitariness, emptiness, and despair, are necessary only if we must live. If life is not the freedom bestowed by God. These are necessary only if we are charged to help ourselves. If pressure is, is exerted from some corner to take life into our own hands to be our own masters, to make something significant of ourselves, to justify, to sanctify, to save and glorify ourselves, and therefore to have to recognize at some point and in some way that we cannot really succeed in doing this. But you see, this supposition is false, for God is gracious to us. It thus follows that we may live, And that since he is God and we are able to live by the fact that he is gracious, we can simply accept the fact that he is sovereign and not we. He has and bears the responsibility for our lives and not we. 
He does with them as he wills and not as we think we must will. He conducts them to their goal irrespective of our success or failure. He justifies. He sanctifies. He saves and glorifies us. This is not required of us. All that is required of us is to accept the fact, receiving and acknowledging his free grace. And in no circumstances are we ever alone. We find ourselves surrounded by him on every side. We cannot then despair, least of all of ourselves and our lives, however much they may seem to us to be unsuccessful, unhappy, useless, or superfluous. The fact is that we belong to God. And therefore, all the angels of God are on our side. And there is for us an inexhaustible, illimitable, and unfailing forgiveness, help, and hope. That is why we cannot will to throw away our lives, whatever happens. End quote. You see, those who don't trust in God, they must live. And so everything is done by them. I've got to do it all. But if you, if you accept that God has done it, then you may live. Life is a gift. It's not something that you must grasp. But it is the story of Jesus that subverts the suicide, the story that suicide is all that's left. The story of Jesus begins like a tragedy. It seems like he starts great. He's a young prophet speaking truth. He's got a big blog, lots of Twitter followers. Everybody's paying attention to this guy from the sticks. He's eloquent. He speaks with authority. He's ushering in the kingdom of God. They're hoping for, you know, overthrow of Roman emperor. And it's great. He's doing great. But then he, then he starts to tick the wrong people off. And then he gets killed. That's a tragedy. But it's only a tragedy when we look at Calvary as the end of the story. But it's not the end. It's the middle It's the middle of the story. See, Jesus' story is not a tragedy, but a comedy. And I don't mean a comedy as in ha-ha, but a comedy as a story with a happy ending. Leland Riken defines comedy as a story that begins in prosperity, descends into tragedy, and rises again to end happily. And that's the story of Jesus. And of course, because the story of Jesus is our story, we no longer have to adopt the narrative of sin leads to death. But the free gift of God is eternal life. We don't have to stay in the story that our lives are a tragedy because they're not. They're a comedy. And death is just the door that leads to immortality. Death is just the transition to something much greater than we can ever fathom. So our lives don't have to end in tragedy. That's just the middle marker. And that's because Jesus' story changes our story. It becomes ours because in him, we are with him at the end. In the happy ending, we're already there. And yet, not yet. So we continue thinking about the wage metaphor. 
It's not that you have accrued all this sin, and now you're going to be judged by it, but at the very point of the tragedy, when it looked like all hope was lost and you had a bank account, all the way to the negative of sin, Christ came in, wiped out your bank account, and gave you a number you could not even fathom. And it's all positive. And he says, the wages of sin is not death anymore because I defeated death. Now the wages that you get are righteousness and life. And you get that free. I just put it in there. You didn't do anything. You just have to believe. You just have to trust that I am the one who is remaking you. I am the one who has changed your story from a tragedy to a comedy with a happy ending. You don't have to be like Saul if you don't give in to Saul's temptation, which is to leave your sin unrepented. The positive balance that Christ has put into your account means that death is not your fitting end as it was for Saul, but merely the transition to glory. So with C.S. Lewis in the last battle, we say, further up and further in. The best is yet to come. Amen? Amen. And as a reminder of that, as a reminder that the best is yet to come, Christ has furnished us with a reminder that sin leads to death story has been changed in his death. This is a reminder that death has been defeated. We come to this table, which is a a visible representation of his life and his death, of his broken body and his shed blood to remind us that that's not your story. That's not your story.